0: I wish I could break
1: Welcome back to the Signal to Noise podcast on Pro Sound Web. I'm Michael Lawrence. As always, I'm joined by my very dash and handsome, experienced, and in Kyle's case, pretty old uh, co-hosts, Chris Leonard Damn. and Kyle Turnside. What's going on, fellas?
0: Kyle, man, he's uh, a <laughs> he's hating. I'm I'm taking the brunt of it. Just I telling love it, it like
1: it is, man. I told you on the <laughs> phone yesterday, Kyle. I call it like I see it, buddy.
2: <laughs> i know right it is what but it is kyle is in much better shape than either
0: you or i michael so that's you true know.
1: that's true i can't hate on that yeah. kyle has been has been hitting it hard at the gym man i gotta really take a lead from that
0: i'm doing it man um it's sometimes it's difficult but uh like we talked about with scove man it's uh became a cool little therapy it's i i suggest it if you can do it i suggest it
1: yeah for sure. And especially, you know, it, it, like Chris and I talked about on the last episode, if you're in between work right now, I mean, that's that's one thing that's really important to get out, get some exercise, you know, take care of yourself. That's really going to kind of help you stay positive and uh, stay in good shape.
0: Or a Call of Duty headset. just that's right.
1: That's true, too. So uh, today we are joined by my friend Jeff Hawley, who is the marketing maestro for Allen & Heath USA. And uh, Jeff and I have been uh really swapping like all sorts of taco recipes and bad you know like dad level puns on on linkedin for a long time so i'm really glad to finally get him on the show jeff thank you for joining us man
3: yay yeah <laughs> thanks for having me guys nice to put the not your face to not not your, wait nice to talk <laughs> to you
1: kinda i don't even know what we're doing what's happening <laughs> <laughs> jeff where are you physically located right now where are you joining us from
3: Um, I'm in Newberry Park, uh, California, Ventura area uh, in the offices of American Music and Sound, which is the uh, distributor for Allen & Heath in the U.S. So you're on
0: the clock right now.
3: (laughs) Technically, I'm getting paid to do this. Yeah, (laughs) that's my man,
0: my man.
1: So Jeff, what what sort of things do you do on a day-to-day basis working for uh, American Music and Sound in your position?
3: Ooh, when you're not, when you're question. not making jokes on
1: LinkedIn,
3: yeah. that is. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, uh, basically anything that it, that relates to marketing from the high level macro sort of strategy, uh, new product launch ideas, surveying the market, kind of seeing needs of engineers um, all the way down to literally doing the content production, uh, editing video, um, you know, mixing background audio for a podcast episode or a video that we're posting uh, coming up with social posts, uh, email marketing—you know, essentially the agency function that you know, a lot of companies would have a whole team doing, um, and the client side—you know—that there's sometimes a marketing manager, and then there's a team that would enact what that marketing manager might be doing. In this case, I I kind of handle both roles, and obviously I have help as well. Uh, but yeah, kind of a, a wide uh swath of marketing madness that I get up to <laughs> um handling the the u s so so I obviously work with the u k bunch and other folks in other countries, but um you know primarily
1: u s market focused and you you know usually I like to start by asking where people got their start i know you you were a jazz musician for a while is that is that true i did was i hear that is rumors?
3: true, yeah. Yeah, the rumors are to be believed. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I've kind of a wacky, crazy background that hopped all over, did a bunch of stuff. But yeah, I started out in school band uh, very early on, playing uh, jazz bass. I also play classical trombone. Um, grew up in Central California, a tiny little farm town called Teleri, uh that was known for a giant international farm tool and tractor convention, wow. basically like Nam, but with cu- yeah cotton trailers instead of drum sets um so not a lot of jazz scene there out doing gigs and things locally uh but I was out on the road pretty early on, and actually even in high school was doing you know international tours around and got to play Carnegie Hall and um, all state honor bands uh went to college kind of music performance at Fullerton College um in Southern california, and you know pretty soon thereafter. Uh, got tasked to do some some studio work recording the school band there. And um, kind of the, the, the closely following that uh, entree into the music industry was kind of on the retail side. Uh, so selling trumpets and trombones and guitars at a local music store. And from there got into the music industry, kind of the more manufacturing side of things.
0: I think Jeff is one of the first guests that's actually said that he was in school band. I was in school band, too. I was in marching band. I was in, you know, a uh, concert orchestra. What did you play? I wonder, a trumpet. And I always sat last chair. Always. <laughs> <laughs> and and here's, oh, yeah. here, here's my reason. I was like, low expectations, bro. You know, like if I didn't study and get further than last chair, then I was actually overachieving during the year when I was marching. So, yeah.
2: Last, last chair yeah. trumpet
0: forever. I, I did tuba for a <laughs> year. <laughs> <laughs> that was I played it. The violin, yeah. I played the I play, yeah,
2: I played. I played by number for the year. I didn't know how to play. I needed a fine art credit. The teacher's like, "What do you want to do?" I was like, oh, "I want to percussion." She's like, "We got too many of them." She's like, "Tell you what I need." She's like, "I, I, I need a tuba, I need a tuba player." And I'm like, "I can't play." She's like, "It's okay." She wrote out her wrote out my scale of like you know one two one three whatever like the scale was, and I just I sat next to the Barry Sachs. I got my pitch from him, and I played by number the whole year, and that was it. <laughs>
0: Tuba is a rough gig yeah. holy cow
1: <laughs> it's important yeah, gig though yeah. Jeff I you said something on LinkedIn the other day um, and it's like super important and it really struck me and I want to I want to kind of share it with the listeners because it's I think it's a really great jumping off point for this conversation um, what I what I said is I, I posted a question uh, and I said, what's one thing you know that you wish you knew when you started your career and what you said was touring as a front of house engineer with a major a-list act is the music business. Coding a new landing page for a ukulele is the music business. Planning the booth logistics for NAMM is the music business. Don't get too hung up on living up to an extremely narrow, but I'm only interested in working in the music business dream that must involve playing to huge crowds and being on the cover of Rolling Stone. And I just think that's such a great thing because you know, we have a lot of young folks listening to us to this podcast who are, you know, starting their career in audio or looking for their path, trying to figure out where they want to go. And I I just, you know, it's one thing that I want to I want to stress over and over again, if you look at Myself and Kyle and Chris and the the careers that we've had and the directions that we've gone in professionally, um, there's no one path in audio, and I think it's just really important to find something that you can bring your passion to and and to do that and to not you know close yourself off to all these different opportunities. and so so your quote was really cool um, and I really wanted to share that with everyone. so so I think you know having you here who's clearly passionate about audio and, and clearly knows their stuff and is really doing really cool stuff, with a major audio manufacturer. I mean, I think that's an awesome example for people to to uh, pay attention to.
3: Cool. Yeah, well, thanks. I, <clears throat> As I was saying before, even the marketing gig and what I'm up to now and what I'm able to do day to day, yeah, I wouldn't be able to do that and to have super stoked, like joy waking up in the morning. Like I get to go do cool stuff. I get to mix audio today, or I get to edit some video, or I get to talk to Michael Lawrence today, or <laughs> I get to work on a new uh, product design mm. today, or I, Hey, I've got some feedback on that website that we're working on. To me, all of those things, I mean, ultimately at the end of the day, it kind of all boils down to you know, is what we're up to uh, bringing more enjoyment to people from music or are we making more music makers in the world? You know, that all sounds kind of cheesy and cliche, but, you know, I think there's something to it. Again, back to school band. It was super fun back then. And I I think a lot of that same sort of thing shows up in what I'm doing today. You know, I, I would say when I'm spending time doing expense reports, yeah, that's obviously much less directly the music industry in my mind, but, you know, it it's all kind of part of the gig, and I think just about everything that I've uh, had the opportunity to do in the past somehow is informing what I'm up to today. That's just kind of how time and physics works and causation, I guess, um, and I think that's where some people get hung up. w I've had the pleasure of having a a bunch of different interns and, you know, folks that were just getting into the uh, music industry uh, in my past that I got to to work with and be a, a bit of a mentor, I guess. You know, and that was one of the things that I think... Again, people got hung up on so so early on. It's like, well, now I've been an intern for three months. I, I get to be the president next, right? <laughs> um, you know, and not not seeing that. Not only does is it rare for someone to have a vision of here is what I want to do when I grow up, and you just be that. Um, but even if you do eventually get to that, it, the the path that you get, you know, that you take, and those little. Uh, a little bit down this tree, you know, branch of the tree, and I'm going to maybe dabble in this a little bit. All of that little stuff, I think, eventually uh, can come back and have some cool applications and just be enjoyable. You know, don't get so hung up on, here's my plan and I have to stick to it. I guess that's the short version.
1: Well, I think, you know, I worked with you, I think it was last year or maybe 18 months ago now, when the SQ7 came out on the market and I worked on a review of it for ProSoundWeb. And, uh, you know, I would email you and say, all right, you know, I I, I went out and I did this, this and this. And I really like the way it does this. And I think when I do this, I think it should do this. And I could tell by the way that you would listen to that feedback and respond that you, you know, you understand what it's like to go out and put your hands on a console and mix shows. And, you know, what, what the boots on the ground are doing with this type of gear. And I think that really brings a lot to the table uh, when you're doing a job like that, because I've dealt with, you know, folks from other manufacturers who shall not be named who um, had no idea why I was asking for a certain feature or would argue with me about why I didn't really need that feature. And, you know, to me, that is indicative of not understanding how these tools are used in the field and the workflows that are used by professionals. And so I think it really brings a, some 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 realness to your work. And I think, you know, I, it definitely spoke to me, I could tell that it was kind of guiding you like, yeah, we're making tools that, that people can can use and, and are helpful and, and, you know, behave in good ways <laughs> in in at shows and stuff, yeah. you know?
3: Yeah. Well, thanks, man. I mean, that, that means a lot. I think that's another um, interesting aspect sometimes to the, to the industry is, and I've seen, I've seen both extremes where there are folks that Uh, when you talk about a marketing role, for instance, that, well, I'm a professional marketer and I have seven MBAs and I used to run all the marketing at Apple. And now I'm going to hop into this really niche audio space and just go and kick some marketing butt. But I don't really understand what a mixing console is, you know, that, Mm. that, that extreme. And then the other extreme where I've been a musician on the road or an engineer on the road forever. And now I'm going to hop in and I, I don't know what marketing is. And I think there, you know, there certainly are pros and cons to those sort of approaches or, or, uh, cases that might pop up. But yeah, I think the best is kind of to have somewhere in the middle and certainly, uh, kind of back to the passion point we mentioned before, that's the part I think you have to have that. I, I can't see how you could be a successful marketer or, uh, you know, on the sales side of things and, and be able to really be effective if you didn't have some passion and understanding of the music industry, at least at a basic level. Um, you know, I, I like to say kind of at the base of marketing, really what you're trying to do is, you know, explain what benefits the product, you know, the product brings and what problems you're solving. That's hard to do if you don't understand the problems in the first place. So,
2: mm-hmm.
3: yeah, thanks for, you know, I'm glad you, yeah. you <laughs> noted that and, you know, yeah.
2: Yeah, that, that, that the word passion is a is a is a key word for me for sure. That's definitely it's a word that I use over and over again to describe, you know, what I do. I mean, you know, I, I do what I do because of my passion. I think, you know, myself and just about everybody on this call, our podcast, uh is is we do what we do because of our, our passion. We're very fortunate to be able to make a living at what our passion is. Um so that's that's definitely a key thing. Hold for on, me.
0: you're making a living? <laughs> <laughs> wait, 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 wait
2: i'm kidding I mean, not from the podcast i'm talking about hey
3: i'm getting paid i just like to remind you all
0: <laughs> yeah oh, we talk about that a lot and that that's a really cool thing to mention i mean the passion is what keeps us driving to do things different and i think that's it goes back to your linkedin answer to michael like it the music business really does encompass a lot of things and we're seeing this a lot lately too and i'm sure you're seeing it with alan and heath is a lot of touring professionals are either giving up or giving up some of their time to help manufacturers now and i think i think that the credibility that that brings to that manufacturer is amazing as well and um when i first started working for manufacturers it was like uh me working for Pixar or Disney if I was a cartoonist or an animator you know that's how much yeah. that empowered me I was so behind what I was doing that <clears throat> the passion was more than like I, I would block out some bosses like I, I just wanted to own that thing because I felt so empowered and passionate about the product that I was selected by a team of people to to do you know yeah.
3: I mean, again, it's, it, it's that what you're describing there, I think is very, very hard to, for someone just to pick up, you you kind of almost have it or you don't. Mm-hmm. Again, if yeah. I, you know, if I was looking for somebody to help us out that, you know, come in and, and give us some feedback on this console, obviously, they need to <laughs> have passion and understand the console. Um, yeah, so all of that being said, though, and a bit of, you know, play a devil's advocate here, there are cases. I mean, I did not go to school and study marketing, so there, there was a bit of learning on the job and, you know, certainly work that I've done since in, in training and actually learning, you know, the, the textbook how to market. Um, so you can learn bits and pieces. I'm not saying it's impossible, but, yeah, there there's certainly something to be said for mm-hmm you know, having both sides of that equation. If you're in the industry, if you're in sales or marketing or, or many, you know, many other jobs, our, our trade show manager here, who's uh, an office over from me, uh same sort of thing. I know I can talk to him after this podcast and say, Hey, you know, how's your day been? And he'll talk about, yeah, we did some cool stuff. We had to nudge this around because of coronavirus and we're, I've got this thing going on, but at the same time, it's going to be cool because of this. And then we can hop into a conversation about, you know, what that impact's going to be on the industry. And I know that's all important to him. Um, Yet, if you ask, you know, engineers that you meet at the trade show, like what it does being in the music industry mean? What are those sorts of gigs? I'm not sure that trade show manager is something that would come up in the list, you know? So, so again, for folks that are just getting started, I'd stress that again, that it's a pretty wide swath and there are lots of roles around this space that as long as you have that passion, I would say count as being in the music business. uh, And certainly that passion
0: can be applied anyone can carry around gaff tape you're in the music business yes yeah <laughs>
1: yeah that's true man. Or a Absolutely. Gerber tool.
0: so so
2: jeff so yeah. alan he alan heath is kind of um you know it's it's rather large in the house of worship market I, I would argue it's probably you know one of the largest you know console manufacturers in the house of worship market at least in the markets that i see so um what is is there something to that there's, there's got to be a common thread there what kind of what kind of weaves that together Sure. Yeah,
3: I would agree with you there. Uh, you know, certainly large in the, in the house of worship space and something that's been important uh, to the company for a long time uh, and clearly a focus, uh, a space I spend a lot of time in uh, writing articles and supporting uh, folks who are volunteers and are just learning and obviously supporting churches at the higher end of that spectrum, you know, with really rock and roll, crazy networked Dante enabled systems and pushing the envelope there. I I think one common thread and one reason why we we tend to do well in that space is really thinking that space out and kind of sitting in their, you know, in their spot and, you know, imagining what it must be like. Yeah, you don't have a lot of money. You you have to go and get these, you know, folks who aren't necessarily professionals in the audio space. You've got to convince the congregation to fund these things that you need. Yet it's technical and it's, In most cases, it's digital. So two years from now, that system probably will need to be uh, at least reviewed to see if it needs to be upgraded. And one of the things we're very careful about is making sure that, ah, well, at least if you update the console, you can keep the stage boxes. You don't have to do a complete... Uh, you know, tear out the whole system and start all over. You you could get the new Avantis, for instance, uh, that just came out very recently and use the stage boxes that are even at 48k uh, from our, uh, that were kind of uh, around when the GLD, a previous system was around. So those little things, just making sure there's forward compatibility and backwards compatibility with, uh, with things as much as we can, and really trying to uh, make sure that there's value there for the, the church market. And I guess it all just kind of comes back down to, you know, making sure we really pay attention and, and listen to what they're saying. You know, that was a big thing um, as we were talking about what would you want to see in a new series? Well, what bits and pieces would we have to replace? You know, so, so yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of factors, but, but that's kind of one big one where I think we, we kind of stand out a bit from, from other folks out there.
2: And 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 training being a big part of that as well, right? I mean, it's, I mean, a lot of a lot of the work that I see that you're doing from uh, LinkedIn and uh, is uh, is training. So it seems like a, an area that obviously, yeah. um, especially in in the in the house of worship market, um, I think you have a higher level of or higher quantity of people who are um, it's not their full time gig. You know, they mm-hmm. you know, they're they're just it's just on the weekends. Um uh they're volunteers, most are volunteers, so there's a a, 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 a big need for, you know, a lot of grassroots training there.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, that, our sponsorship of Church Sound University I think is one uh, key example of that. Uh, this year, you know, a handful of of really cool training events. I just went to the one, I guess, a handful of weeks back now. Uh, that was in Southern California. That was just super cool. You know, a track on here's what a microphone is. You know, here's what you might want to consider. You know, when when selecting a microphone, um, and here's a mixing console. It really does start at that level. And uh, we had Samantha Potter there, who I know you've had as a guest before. Uh, you know, training on not just as the Allen Heath SQ, but really more about training on what is a compressor, why should you, uh, you know, have a lim- limiter in place, and so on and so forth. So I think uh, training certainly an important part, but focusing the training on house of worship, not just, Hey, here's certification on D live. Right. That's great, but that doesn't necessarily get to here's how this would apply to, you know, your average church down the street that, you know, probably the, the vast majority is, doesn't need a D live. Uh, you know, that a ton of that mid tier church out there, that's an SQ or Avantis level, um, you know, facility, Making that again, really thinking it out. What sort of training would they need? And let's hone it in and offer that up.
2: Yeah, I think I think it's pretty a pretty big deal that, um, and you know this from like mark, marketing in general. Like uh, whoever is is creating the most value, it, it wins, right? And so. Um, yeah. And so I, 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 I appreciate the fact that, you know, as, as, as a manufacturer company, you guys recognize that, again, like you said, you're not just trying to train people on your consoles. You're trying to provide value for a whole team of people who are going to interact across the whole sound system as opposed to just the console itself. So that, that, that speaks volumes for sure.
3: Yeah, and yeah, that's a good point. I, we actually just uh, announced today. Actually, uh, we we had a few beta instances of our Allen and Heath Academy training, um, and uh, you almost directly quoted me there without without knowing <laughs> it. You know, that basically our, our what we're up to with the Allen and Heath Academy. Yes, we'd love for you to know how to use the DLive better, but the goal is to try to bring the entire, you know world of mixing engineers up a notch or two and to really start thinking and and rethinking in some cases about how networked audio works today um you know if we think yeah we'd love for you to get better at mixing and we would love for that to be an allen and heath desk you're mixing on but i think there's also value to you're a better engineer and you also can mix better on a yamaha and better on a midas and so on and so forth so uh, that's kind of what we're up to. And then specific as that subset, as I mentioned, you know, to the house of worship sp- uh, space, I think you you nailed it. You have, there's the extra element there of these aren't necessarily folks who wake up thinking about, you know, being better mixers every day, um, you know, with the volunteer aspect there. And yeah, kind of cool. I, again, that's another part, as you asked before, what do I do and what does my day job look like? You know, thinking out what this training uh, how it comes together, how we're gonna tell that story and yeah very I mean, I, very I, cool I, lots I th- of fun
1: i think I think there's something really important that you're kind of you know you're kind of hinting at, Jeff to me, which is you know i've seen over the last couple of years maybe five five to eight years or so the technology that these houses of worship in particular and you know small clubs and 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 so on and so forth multiple venues, but particularly houses of worship the technology that they've had access to has just leapfrogged, I mean, just immensely, Com- you know, compared to 10 years ago. what If you walked into a random church, the console that you were likely to find versus now, um, the capability has yeah. just massively increased. But I think there's been a lag because, like you said, a lot of the people operating this, these pieces of equipment are volunteers. They're not professional engineers in a lot of cases. Um, and so there comes a point when we have these advanced, really powerful tools, but, you know, we're still sort of bottlenecked by our ability to understand these tools and use these tools and understand the principles that are, that are at play. You know, when I go in and work with churches, a lot of the stuff that we're talking about is, is gain structure, you know, uh, signal flow, like the very basic kind of fundamentals of audio. And so I, I think, I know we have a lot of listeners in the house of worship market. I would say to those people, you know, when, when that, when that annual budget comes up, um, you know, it's really cool to get a flashy new line array, and I see churches that put in a flashy new line array every two years, but it never gets better because, hey, what you needed was acoustic treatment. What you needed was different microphones. What you needed was someone to come in and train your people. So, so you know, I would just kind of put it on the radar for folks that are looking to make their next investment in their worship sound system to kind of think about all the variables here, and maybe there's some money that's better spent going to – a training class, like the one you're talking about, or, or, you know, hiring an expert to come in and measure your system and work with you on that. And, you know, maybe buying the latest, greatest thing isn't always what's needed. And so I think, you know, this consciousness of what are all the ingredients here? And where's our weak spot right now? And where should these resources be dedicated?
3: Yeah. What he said. <laughs> yeah that you know and again i think that's why the church Sound university uh, curriculum and that that whole program was so it, it was immediate when you know I, we first started looking at that like yeah we have to do this mm-hmm. we have to go big on this because like you said this touches on all of those elements and you really do need to consider them all you know fairly you know cohesively um you know having a kick and you know line array and a compact you know, analog, analog two channel mixer, you know, probably a mismatch there. You know, there are certain elements that you've got to, you know, think of, about the system. And that's where I think, you know, there's, there's training out there it doesn't have to be uh CSU, but uh, you know, at least that sort of thought process, I think is uh, probably more of a value to the church, just looking at it that way, than, you know, like you said, a little bit of a bump in, you know, a a budget that you spend on that just that much better line array or, well, instead of the SQ, let's go for the Avantis. Well, again, if the other systems aren't in place, I don't know that you're necessarily going to really end up that much better off.
1: I mean, and the other part of that to me is, you know, do you have the context to make a good decision? Uh, You know, whenever I work with churches, it's all about, you know, a lot of times this money, the congregation has been saving money for a long time. And so you really want to make sure they're getting the best investment that they can for that money. And so, you know, it's more about, I know what you want to buy, but what do you really, what do you need to buy? You know? Um, and yeah. so that's, you know, like, I mean, just just looking at the Allen Heath product line, you guys have a, a bunch of choices over a, a wide range of applications and capabilities and scale that I, I see all of them in churches of different different, you know, scales. And so the question is, which one of these tools is the right tool for us? And I think, you know, you really want to take some time and do some research and talk to some folks about that before you kind of jump in. And, you know, buyer's remorse is a real thing, and you really got to be careful with that.
2: Yeah. I also want to, you know, just point out, you know, um... You know, for you, Jeff, and for Alan Heath, I mean, I, I see plenty of Alan Heath product, not just in the house of worship market as well. I mean, um, I know some corporate guys, <clears throat> pardon me, who, who absolutely love it. It's definitely, you know, uh, definitely in the touring market as well. So we I, we're definitely not trying to paint the picture that Alan Heath is only in the house of worship market. So I just want to just want to throw that out there. <laughs> yeah,
3: thanks. Thanks for that. Yeah. I'd, I'd... All those points taken. Yeah. And I think that's kind of almost exactly to that point. And back to even as we were talking about my, my view or take of what marketing is primarily up to, what problem are you trying to solve? Mm-hmm. Well, we need a console that we can take on tour and fit you know, on the bus. Okay, well, that will guide you to the DLive C1500 or whatever it may be. You know, oh, well, our church has X budget and we have Dante already in the building and we need to do this better. Okay, well, there you go, SQ. You know, and I think that's as simple as it sounds. Sometimes where, where these selections go wrong is you can't define or at least you haven't clearly defined what are you trying to do? What does success look like? you know and that's a, a common question that from a marketing standpoint, I ask myself you know pretty much every day on a project or a web page or you know, we're looking to release a video. what does success look like? What problem are we trying to solve what What is this going to bring who why does would anybody care about this video? <laughs> and you kind of you, you should probably ask that question before you make the video, and I think it' sometimes it's almost that simple the things that are missed with people trying to budget or select a console and, you know, even though we are very, uh, you know, cost effective uh, and, you know, bring lots of value. Yeah. It's lots of money in many cases. Um, And sometimes folks just don't have a clear answer to what problem are you trying to solve? What, what does success look like? So.
1: Jeff, one of the things you sent me an email about uh, a couple months ago was uh, you're doing a really cool project out in, in Hollywood at a, at a venue. Uh, can you, can you tell us about that, man? Cause that's, that's pretty neat stuff.
3: Yeah. Well, you may have heard of this venue. Uh, there's been a couple bands that played there, uh, <laughs> like Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, Pearl Jam, Johnny Cash, County Crows, Bruce Springsteen, the Wallflowers, Oasis. Uh, our, our, so our audience is a little pilots. younger, so <laughs> yeah. you might need no, – I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I
2: mean, How, Kyle, yeah. Kyle, Kyle, Kyle knows who they are, but, I mean, everyone else. Yeah, oh.
0: I, I, I was with those guys when they were in the van.
3: Yeah. <laughs> How, Howard
0: Page so, mixed all those bands.
3: <laughs> 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 I thought we were
0: introducing him again. Holy cow. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. So, so, yeah, actually a really cool project that I got to work on uh, together with the folks at the Viper Room. Um, so, uh, sometimes called, uh, Johnny Depp's place, cool, cool club, uh, sunset strip, really famous, obviously lots of, uh, you know, name recognition there, but it's kind of one of those places as with a lot of these clubs, when you walk in, it's not a giant space. Uh, it's a, you know, 175, 200 cap, maybe club, Um, And so pretty cool. And uh, the system that they had for years, and they're going back to some of these major groups was uh, very uh, representative of the time. So going back, let's say to the, you know, early, early 90s, uh, the club opened in 93. And that first system uh, the a one audio mm-hmm. team and, uh, Don Bish, usually folks just call him dish. Uh, he, I've, I've, worked with him a couple of times and actually ran into him. Uh, he's got his own sound company and up to some cool stuff. I, I actually, I'll, uh, I'll make sure to connect you guys. I think he would be an awesome guest, uh, on, on a future podcast. Uh, so dish or Don Bish, um, also does some cool work. Uh, He'll find a club and he does this about once a year, you know, a venue where he goes in and does a venue rescue program. So if they are getting like cool artists and shows coming in, but the sound system's terrible, he'll kind of scrounge and work and work with companies and find a way to improve their sound system and keep them rocking. And he's just like one of those guys that I love talking to. He's been in the industry forever. Um, And uh, so, so working with him and talking a, a bit of the history of the Viper room um, he was there, kind of from the start of of the the modern version of the Viper Room. So, so I, they started out with three uh, EV MTL one subs uh, and two sides of the MTH one, the biamped coaxial mains, like kind of the you know your standard box. Um, not not uh, rocket surgery there. Speakers that aimed at an audience. Um, and custom (laughs) wedges actually an interesting story. He said that they came, uh, that they were custom made for Aerosmith and somehow there was a connection to a connection and they bought them back off of an Aerosmith tour. And so those monitor wedges, uh, ended up being there for, for a long time on stage. And the, uh, which I'm, I'm sure, us older folks will will remember the Crest seven thousand one power amps. They're like fifty pounds each, mm-hmm. and when you powered them up, there was actually a disruption in, uh, you know, space and time, <laughs> um, like crazy power amps. And you know these huge EV subs, and you know, and these mains, um, and the desk was also giant in that first uh, iteration of the Viper Room with a minus XL two hundred and fifty. That's like over. Two hundred and fifty pounds. I think that's why they called it the two fifty, um, <laughs> uh, and a little Soundcraft uh, Spirit Live as the the sidecar monitor sort of desk, um, and that sounded great as the you know those older Midas desks did. And uh, but it never particularly recovered, I guess, from a a uh, <laughs> a bunch of dust and grime and other sort of substances that might go unnamed uh, that kept falling into the desk, and eventually it just was on its last legs. And it was replaced with the Midas Heritage 1000, uh, the, the classic purple Midas desk, um, which also saw its uh, you know, fair share of rough living. That was around 2000, I think, that that switch was made uh, to the over to the Midas Heritage, and that's an interesting desk. Um, actually, both of those—the thing I remember was they had the coolest typography out there. So for design nerds. Uh, it was all lowercase everywhere on the, on both of those desks on the labeling and the O's and the A's look very similar. So it's like, it got, got this really hip old school, uh, Midas font. And I, I think on your desk, you've got a pro one, right, Michael? I do. Yeah. They,
1: yeah. It's very, so that's they also the, the lowercase. Yeah. yeah. Yep.
3: Yeah. I, the buttons are like all caps, but the screen is all lowercase. So anyways, um, so, yeah, they had a couple uh, really hip desks and kind of the classic Midas desks there, uh, and then switched over at some point moderately recently uh, to uh, something much, much smaller and um, – not to throw any shade or even call out what the desk is. I'll just say that if you do have a 2012-era iPhone and you were anxious to have a built-in <laughs> phone holder in the bottom right corner, this would have been the perfect desk for you. Um, so that's what it switched to and was there for a while. Uh, so anyways, we from that point, uh, Dish was looking to upgrade the entire system. Um, and did switch over. Uh, so we, we kind of helped out. with. Uh, there's two uh, Allen & Heath SQ7s now, um, monitor in front of house function, uh, in the strangest mixed position known to man. It's yes. basically <laughs> like, uh, in, yeah, in being John Malkovich, you know how there's like that tunnel you go through to get into Malkovich's head? That's kind of what this mixed position is like, a little weird cubbyhole thing. Uh, yeah. There's like a foot wide that you can kind of glance through and maybe see the stage. Um, But anyways, that's how it's been. Um, And they kept it up there and um, just basically moved the the Midas desk and the other um, non-touchscreen digital desk um, out of the way and put the SQ7s um, up there. And now, instead of the the EV stuff, those feed three to a side DB technologies, the VOL two hundred eight the line array modules, um, and they really dug those because the onboard DSP, and they just kind of turn them on. It's basically set and forget it once it's been set and tuned for the space. Uh, and then a bunch of the DB technologies monitor wedges, the DVX DM 12th uh, for oh, I Thunder love those things, Audio. Man.
1: Those are yeah, little which will
3: basically, yeah, they'll rip your face off. Um, yeah. like the <laughs> loudest little monitor wedges I've you know I've heard, um, and they're cool. I don't know if you know, but you can actually flip, uh, pretty easy to flip the the front panel to move what side the the horn is on. So you can do kind of a left right pair or stick the horns together if you really want to you know slam the the lead vocalist. Um, you know, if you've got someone who wants even more, kind of cool. It's, it's just, it, it comes off and there's a little clip and you can actually flip while you keep the, the inputs and the, the other elements of the box in place. Kind of cool. Um, I think they've got a drum. Actually, I actually don't remember which one it is, but there's an active drum fill in their uh, sub as well on the stage. Uh, and then an Ingenia rig that they have in the lounge and cocktail bar area, which is kind of a, a smaller uh, DB system. But yeah, I, so that's the I new system. Remember. And
1: I think it was out there like, I want to say 2010, maybe. And I remember, you know, the, the sound engineer that we were, the front of house guy for the act I was with, he's like, all right, I'm going up to the booth. And we we're like, where's, Where's Nick? Like, Where'd he go? (laughs) He's like, he's in the next room. You can't see him. He's trying to talk to us. We can't hear him. It's brutal, man. (laughs) Yeah, I
3: can't stress enough how weird, like it really is this little thing. You kind of crawl up these stairs in a little tube, and you come out the other side, and there's weird lighting in there, and it's just, it's wacky, but it's cool, and it's really awesome. Uh, I think I posted a picture, like sitting in that position, like, wow, like Johnny Cash, was mixed from this position. Mm-hmm. Jerry Lee Lewis was mixed from this position. Queens of the Stone Age, <laughs> you know, it's just like from this little space, pretty awesome for sure, man. So, so yeah, that's the new system. I mean, the the very short that was a long story. The short version is uh, now they've got you know Alan and Heath and DB Tech uh, stuff throughout the system, and and you know, folks have been over the moon with the. Uh, the new rig and how easy it is to you know just kind of basically turn it on and rock and roll.
1: There you go, Kyle. When when was the last time you were out in the Viper
0: Room? Um, I've only been in there to see shows, and I climbed up the front of house when they had the Heritage up there, and you actually had to almost lay down to mix. And and he, <laughs> yeah, he, Jeff's so cool because he's got all these like he's dropping some serious names. All I remember is that Walking Phoenix died outside. Like that's horrible. That's like. Yeah. yeah. No
3: river river Phoenix. River not Joaquin. River. That's it. A- Joaquin yeah. is still with yeah, us. He's still, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> shows you how much i was really alarmed for a
1: second there i was like i feel like i just saw him in a movie not too long ago yeah it was yeah.
0: like joker or something yeah yeah, yeah. We, we talked yeah. To the, we talked to the sound we designer did. so <laughs> we did the one thing that you did mention that that people probably don't even realize unless they've been there uh all those all those clubs that are on the sunset strip man iconic like you said every musician ever went through there like If it wasn't Mm -hmm. for that place, there would be no Motley Crue. There would be no hair metal of the 80s type stuff. And then you get there and you're like, wow, did they ever have a broom? (laughs) <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah, and I was trying to be gentle. I mean, because I know, uh, you know, Dish uh, cares and there's people there. I mean, they're not purposely trying to be grungy and hard on the gear, but it's just, yeah, it's rock and roll and stuff happens and it they've got shows every frickin' night and yeah, the man. gear just gets
0: pummeled. And they'll and have so. matinee shows. Like they'll have matinee shows during the day for like yeah. local bands that are really trying to do the thing and then they'll shut at six or whatever and reopen for the show Mm -hmm. that night man it's it's amazing that the the turnout of those venues down there i mean it's the roxy it's the whiskey it's the viper room um i'm probably leaving something out yeah absolutely uh it's kind of amazing to think and and you take a boy from the midwest and you put him on hollywood boulevard or sunset strip like that's pretty much you're fulfilling your dreams at that point. So being able to go in there and put a desk and help with the sound system, dude, that's a pretty cool thing to have on your resume, man. Like uh, that, that's super iconic. I think you can put yourself in the list of names that you just dropped for sure, because that's really cool.
3: Yeah. I'll, I'll wedge between green day and stone temple pilots.
0: Yeah, that's a good wedge. That's a good wedge. Um, yeah, I I like that.
3: Jeff Holly
1: helped selected desk
0: well we have got
1: (laughs) chris just dug up the photo and i think we can put this in the uh the episode description of you you at next position there, looking through the little cubby hole with the uh with the sq7 (laughs) so we'll get that that, but you look pretty cool um yeah you know well jeff one of the things that that you and i have sort of been discussing a little bit is like you know kind of like the, the philosophy end of of uh audio and you know i i, I you know ah. I, we're kind of starting to get up against the clock a little bit but i definitely want to touch on it because it's really you know interesting stuff you know kind of you know what is sound and is it is it is it a s- created by the source is it is it the act of transmission of a vibration is it something that we perceive i mean and, and you kind of hold on okay
0: i, I gotta check i gotta check my insta pot <laughs> <laughs> sorry that was an off-air joke but we all got it yeah <laughs>
1: So uh I I you know I think it's just goes to show like how deep this rabbit hole really goes if you want to if you want to dive into that. So I mean you said you were kind of doing some reading and and some exploring of those topics.
3: Yeah. Well, it, it, in my spare time, when I'm not uh, selecting uh, consoles for the world famous Viper Room, yes. I'm, I'm actually uh, still plugging away in school, working on advanced degree in philosophy, uh, specifically around philosophy of mind. And my kind of my goal when I grow up, um, someday, is to to you know retire eventually and teach philosophy at a community college somewhere. And just really got bit by the philosophy bug early on, and 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 have always been kind of studied and, and very interested in the space and. Like you said, there's some super basic, very simple questions uh, that I don't think we've got really good answers to. And strangely enough, I don't think a lot of sound engineers really think about. Yeah. And so one question as an example that I'm working through now is just where does sound occur? You know, so as simple as that question may seem that, you know, they're actually competing philosophical theories. You know, is it at the hearer? Is it in the sound waves transmitted in the medium? Is it what's called distal? So is it at the sounding object? And then you can kind of, however you answer each one of those, then ties to different um, you know, metaphysical implications. You know what what kind of thing is sound then, and what kind of world is it? Is this all just in my mind, or is there physical reality out there? So it doesn't take much to hop from these pretty basic questions over to something that's crazy heavy. And actually, as strange as it sounds, I think. A simple question that gets at this is the kind of classic, if a tree falls in the forest and no one is around to hear it, does it make a sound? And in philosophical terms, that's basically saying uh, something like, is sound part of a mind-independent reality? You know, So an 18th century Irish philosopher, you know, uh, George Barclay, was asking this question long ago. And I don't think, I mean, I'm going to survey and put you guys on the spot here. How would you answer that question? Oh If a man. tree falls in the
2: forest and
3: no one's around to hear it, does it make a sound?
2: I'm going to let Chris go first because I I I, uh, I have
1: an unfair advantage here.
2: Yeah. So I mean, like, all right. So I, I have to do the textbook answer of right. So uh, in in theory, if physics are physics, and when that tree fell, it's going to you know move air molecules, which are going to compress and refract, and then therefore, yes, w- that's what we call sound and But Michael led me into this, so I know I have a a little disadvantage as well. Oh, now I'm going to look
0: dumb again? Thanks, guys. Uh, No, but like. So Thanks. I mean,
2: yes, I, 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 if you know the the easy softball answer is that yes, yes, it makes a sound whether you hear it or not. Uh, but I'd be curious to see. I, I, I don't know the philosophical thought of that. Of like, yes, does someone have to perceive it? Like, could a deer in the forest perceive it? And so then, yes, someone heard it, just not a human. And so yet, now you're into know. the
1: uh, you know the whole Heisenberg uncertainty. You know, and we've we've oh, observed it man. and only exists when we observe it. All right, Kyle, what do you got, man? What do you? Yeah. What do you got from for
0: us? from a guy who aspires to be a roller skate rate DJ um, <laughs> I'll, keep it, I'll keep it super simple I mean I definitely believe with the physics things if, if if it moves air you know something is created at that point you know how far does it travel as an engineer you think about those things you know oh it's doing this thing so but I also would like to comment on this and I like the super deep questions I'm just not prepared for it right now <laughs> and, and I would like to like Joe Rogan this out and like do some dmt or whatever and like figure it out because that would yeah. be that i love those deep questions that is super cool that you would even think about that i took one philosophy class in college and it was so mind-blowing that i switched over to psych like to figure out what was wrong with me <laughs> yeah
3: yeah that cool. happens. Yeah. And, and that's where I, I, what I really dig about philosophy is, you know, I, I'd say easily 20 years that I would say I've been more than just even an armchair philosopher that, you know, really studying and spending some a good a chunk of time. And it's kind of one of those, like, I don't even pretend to know anything. It's like, the more you start to dig into it, the more you realize you don't know anything. And like, anything like what is reality like is is this all you know kind of like the matrix is this you know is there an evil demon that's tricking I me and this. i'm just
1: dreaming well, then i gotta you know? go on the record get way. into it
3: yeah <laughs> you,
0: jeff wait, was trying I, I wanna, to
1: convince me i was in a computer simulation the other day so i just went oh yeah that's a really good one okay so i'll, I'll
3: end Hold this on. philosophical okay i've got to throw this out here think about it so in the future Not too far out, technologically advanced civilizations will eventually make simulations that are indistinguishable from reality. So, if you if you think you've got to buy into step one that mind and and mental can be created outside of a human mind, which is very contentious in in philosophy, and I don't know that I totally agree that that's even a thing. But if you do think so, that you could have intelligent, like real simulations of uh, consciousness that could be indistinguishable from reality. Somewhere in the future, then, if that can happen, the odds are it has, and if it has, then there are billions oh. of simulations making Jeez. their own simulations, <laughs> and oh, the yes, odds man. right now, <laughs> all
2: right. so so are all right, in I, the
3: favor. We're I living in a Wally. computer I, simulation, I and I'm Wally. getting <laughs>
2: paid
3: to be in this computer simulation. So hold on, all right, all right. I,
2: I I I actually I buy into the, the 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 future possibility of simulation. I want to circle back though. Hold on, we we didn't. I want to hear. I want Let's to hear the right converse. Oh, we got off on a tangent. Yes, maybe I, yes, I, I yes, the simulation was yeah. Let's rewind the simulation here. <laughs> uh, I... What, 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 what is the flip side to the conversation of, okay, well, physics is physics. The air molecules moved. Uh, I, I, yeah. Please, can we go back to that? <laughs> yeah.
3: So, so the, the, the big thing is it, from a philosophical standpoint, it's a very, very muddled at best distinction between sound and how we use the word sound and we think of the concept of sound and what we would refer to as vibrations or mechanical, you know, air getting knocked around, you know, that there is that physical thing that are vibrations. And we frequently just conflate the two and, you know, kind of get it all a bit confused. You know, I actually think there's uh, a, a paper by a philosopher named uh, Robert Pasnow, who, who kind of sums this up as saying, this, our, just our standard view about sound is incoherent. You know, so we suppose sound is a is a quality and not an object, but it's also this thing that's, you know, really the surrounding medium and you have to have this. But at the same time, uh, there was actually an article, uh, the PSN article not too long ago by Michael Fay. And I was reading this and I like tripped out. I had kind of one of those uh, moments, as you noted, that happens sometimes when you're off in crazy philosophy land. So, so Michael notes in this article, The Mental Side of Mixing, that he will do uh, training on mixing. And he asks students to raise their hand if they can hear a common sound in their mind's ear, like a trumpet. So everybody that's listening to this podcast, think about a trumpet in your head. Okay? Now, where the heck is that in physical reality? So there's the mental and there's the thought about it. You're hearing a trumpet, but where is that? Now it's mental. So so we would say you're hearing that. And I think in normal, plain speak, we would use the same word. I'm hearing that in the same way I would hear an actual trumpet. You might say, well, I'm imagining the sound of it, but there's still sound somewhere in there. I would go back to, you know again, the idea that just basically it's all kind of muddled. And I think it's worth digging in and doing a little more rigorous look at where all this stuff happens and what it means if we actually say the sound is in the resonating object over there versus it's in the medium uh, passing to mm-hmm. me versus it's all in my head. Mm-hmm. Those, those are like things we should probably know. We work on sound 99% of our waking life. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just fun. I love digging into it and I'll be digging into it more. Maybe I'll, I'll post some more so- on LinkedIn to totally trip everybody out.
2: There you go. Yes. So that that makes me think, though, like so when someone says they're hearing voices in their head, right? That's the same type of concept, right? Like if you you, know, ah. you hear like how like so if like a schizophrenic <laughs> person hears all these voices yeah. going back, like are, is the term hearing voices the proper? Right? I mean, is that that's the same concept of hearing that trumpet, right? Uh, or, de- or maybe describe,
0: I mean, man, I did not even be. prepare for this. Yeah, at all.
2: <laughs> yeah.
3: It, it could be a different concept <laughs> if if what you're talking about it, like you as you said. You went into psych because you got so tripped out from philosophy. Yeah. It could be that you kind of step outside of the basic question we're trying to get at okay. in this space, but maybe not. Yeah. If you're hearing voices, you probably could still ask that question. Well, where are those voices in reality? Located. Is this just purely mental or is there a physical, is there a wiring of neurons somewhere that I could grab and that's the thing that's representing those voices? You know In philosophy, the big break point is basically it is the world – how many things is the world made out of? There's dualism, which is essentially thinking the world is mental and physical and somehow those interact and exist at the same time. Or it's – you're a monist and you think, well, it's all mind. Uh, like George Barclay thought, um, or it's all physical, which many scientists and you know a lot of folks think. Yeah, it's just all there's the mental is just the brain coming together, but that's kind of a cop out for from a, a philosophical standpoint. It's not that easy. These sort of questions keep coming back around, and and it's fun to play with them all. So,
2: so you know. Michael, when are we doing um, episode two? I was just, just, gonna, I was just thinking we have like, to get
1: Jeff to come back and we have to dig into all this again because this is. Uh, yeah. That, that would be yourself. super cool. Kyle, you can study. We'll give Kyle some time to to do a little reading first. And uh Yeah, yeah. That's what I call
0: it. Reading <laughs> wink, wink, wink. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I do want to get to a reader question before we wrap up. And Jeff, I'm gonna uh gonna give you an yep. honorary place on the uh the answering panel here. Um to, Sweet. To some advice. This is a message from and uh from I hope I don't totally destroy this name Jean-Baptiste Trichard from Uh, France. Uh, And uh, Jean-Baptiste, you can email me after and let me know how terribly I destroyed your name. Um, And Jean-Baptiste writes in and says, I'm currently working in small slash medium sized places from 100 to 500 people in the audience, mainly in two different places in my hometown. I do two to three shows in this kind of environment every week these days during the slow season. This summer I will be doing much larger venues and places, 1,000 to 500 cap Um, a band I work with, but I have little experience in doing live sound for audiences this big. And I want to know if you had some kind of advice to get myself prepared. I do have multi-track recordings of the band from previous shows. So um, I guess we'll just go around and, uh, you know, give out some advice. I'm going to start by just saying when you get up to the big shows, stage volume, you know, what's coming off the stage starts to contribute less and less to the audience experience for the most part. And so your mix, you know, really has to be dialed in in a different way than it would be in a small club. And, uh, you know, I am I would start by paying a lot of attention to the PA, you know, put your reference music on when you get in front of the PA system uh, and just make sure that PA sounds right. And if not EQ it until your reference music sounds correct, because if your PA is all goofy you know, this this mix that you've sat there and worked on with your virtual sound check tracks, uh, it's gonna come out sounding funky and you're gonna start screwing your mix up. So I would say get the outputs right because the PA sound good. Um, that's where I would start.
2: Uh, for me, I, I would say, um, you know, outside of system tuning, you know, um, just from a, a mixing standpoint. Um, I wouldn't try to think much about it. Like if you're comfortable in how you're already mixing, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, you're just making it louder and throwing it further, you know, and more people are happening, happening to listening. So, Mm -hmm. you know, if, if you're, if you're confident in and, and the way you're mixing is already going, um, I, I think if you try to psychoanalyze that too much, um, then you're actually going to get, uh, get in your own way and actually, you know, hinder yourself. That's a great
0: point. Yeah. I agree I agree with both of you guys uh, totally 100%. One, it doesn't matter if you're mixing for 100 or 100,000. Um, nice. Approach your mix the same way. Uh, you'll actually probably find out that it's a lot easier to mix for larger audiences than it is smaller because sometimes of the restrictions, you know. Um, and then also what Michael said – make sure your PA is right to begin with, you know, hopefully you'll have the time to do that. You say you have multi-track recordings of the band. If that's what you're used to listening to, if you have your smart rig, you can pink it, you know, do the proper steps to get where you're at. Don't think about the capacity. The capacity is just a thing. It's the thing that you have to swim through to get to front of house to get your show started. So <laughs> it, it's just another layer of sticky kids to, to get to your spot. Um, so I kind of agree with both of you there on that one.
3: Yeah, yeah. I would just add there's a, a really interesting uh, AES uh, at NAM session that I got a chance to check out with Drew Thornton, who's the front house engineer for Billie Eilish, uh, and one of my favorite engineers out there. And he's so he who's doing this session and basically landed on much of the same sort of uh, tips for everybody that. He, he doesn't necessarily edit his mix at all from venue to venue, whether it's a you know a huge award sort of show or a festival or or a smaller uh, venue that you know that Billy's performing at. That he does a lot of that out on a matrix, or you know it's kind of at the end of the equation, so to speak. But he kind of keeps all of the front, you know, the the main gain stage stuff, the core of the mix, the heart of the mix, so to speak. You know very very much the same from venue to venue and his you know his kind of his test and his uh, advice there was you know in recording that back out uh, that it should sound good no matter what venue you're in if you're just recording straight out of that mix. Um, so that's kind of another way to validate if you've gone way off the the deep end on kind of overcompensating on the mix for a really small venue or a really large venue. Or you just kind of have things set up in a really funky way um, you know, that that might start to show up in just your board mix. Um, so there's a lot, of, a lot to unpack there and other things to dig into to get to that point. Uh, but just kind of adding some a little bit of a, a two cents that, you know, kind of coming from Drew's perspective and something he said that really resonated with me and something that I've been paying more attention to and in, in my mixing. So yeah, well, hopefully that it. helps.
1: So thank you. Uh, thank you, Jean-Baptiste for the question. That was cool. And uh, anyone that has questions, comments uh, you want to, you know, some verbal abuse for Kyle, uh, follow up oh. questions for Jeff. You can send us an email at signal number two, noise podcast at gmail.com. And uh I think, boys, we have a we have a new Facebook page group thing. Yep. I don't yeah. use yeah. Facebook, so you have to
2: explain yeah. it. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, Facebook group, Singleton Noise Podcast. You can search it. Uh, it it'll be in the um, the show notes as well. Uh, we've got uh, almost 400 people have joined in the past like two hey. weeks, which is pretty great. Yeah, we've got some Just conversations get- going on there. We we really want to connect with you guys, see what you're doing, you know, talk about topics, uh, stuff like that. So
0: please come join the community so
2: we can you know help
0: each other out. Share recipes, and we're also sponsored by Sure SM7 microphones. We're glad to use on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thanks for letting us use your stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Until next time, guys. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks a bunch, man. It was great having you on.
3: Yeah, awesome. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you. Talk to you soon.